Welcome to the Defense and Airspace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. As part of our special coverage of the Air and Space Forces Association's annual Air Space Cyber Conference and Trade Show, we have a special program today with some of our conversations uh, from and since the U.S. Air Force's largest annual gathering. Later in the program, we'll hear from Ronan Horowitz, the president and CEO of Elbit Systems of America, and Duane Hawkins, the president of uh, the defense and space business at Spirit Aerosystems. But first, joining us is Dave Deptula, a retired United States Air Force Lieutenant General and the Dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies for his take on the messaging we heard from senior Air Force leaders uh, during the three days of uh, this great gathering. Dave, it's always an honor and pleasure uh, having you on. And if the audience uh, recalls, you joined us before AFA to give us what your expectations are of what we were going to hear. So we really appreciate you joining us again. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks. It's great to be on, Vago, and, and uh, kind of give you my perspectives of uh, what happened last week. But before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, ultra intelligence and communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and our coverage of AFA's Airspace Cyber Conference and Trade Show was sponsored by Leonardo DRS. I uh, wanted to start off with what were your key takeaways, uh, right? I mean, it was it was three days, action packed, uh, a lot of messages from senior leadership. We'll get into you know the specific presentations that stood out, but what were your overall takeaways uh, from the three days? Well, um, first of all, I think uh, most would agree, if not all, that um, this year's uh, conference was one of the best in recent years. Uh, it certainly was one of the largest. Um, from the secretary and the chief's remarks uh, to those of the rest of the panel presentations, it really was rich in content. And uh, it gave all of those, at least those who are paying attention, insights into many of the significant challenges that our air and space force uh, are facing uh, today. Now, while there was something covering each of the mission areas in the Department of the Air Force Enterprise, I think that from a macro level perspective, the key takeaway was that the Department of the Air Force faces serious challenges now, as well as in the future, in meeting the expectations of the nation's combatant commanders. And the reason for that is the increased demand for aerospace forces that's necessary to meet all of our security challenges. Right. Now, you know that the conference marked the 75th anniversary of our Air Force. Um, and accordingly, the theme of the conference was 75 years in the defense of our nation. And while all airmen and guardians are justifiably proud of our heritage and the great deeds of the men and women who got us to be the most respected air and space forces in the world, it's important to be candid and acknowledge that the Air Force today is the oldest, the smallest, and the least ready in the history of those 75 years. And, and, we, and, and, and we did hear that from uh, senior leadership, right? Uh, and uh, Well, not uh, so much. That's what my concern is, is there was a lot of, uh, you know, patting on the back and talking about how great we were, 
without an acknowledgement that in fact, we are the oldest, smallest and least ready. And so that's one of the areas that I wanted to focus on because that with the path that the Air Force is on in the future year's defense plan, it's headed to becoming even older and smaller than it is today. And, and to reverse this ominous trend, redistributing resources among the armed services while painful is going to be required. Uh, what, were, what, what were the top presentations uh, that uh, jumped out at you over the course of the three days? Yeah, well, first that message, which I, I, I tried to highlight, while it was not made explicitly by either the secretary or the chief, was certainly made clear in the presentation by General Kelly, the commander of Air Combat Command, um, in his presentation that vividly showed the decline in the deterrent and warfighting capacity of the Air Force over the past 30 years. Kelly's presentation was the most attention getting of the entire conference. And he made it very clear that the Air Force writ large and the fighter force in particular have been levied more mission on them than it has force structure to accomplish. And he went on to make the point um, that the Air Force's 2018 assessment regarding the Air Force we need is still relevant today. His bottom line is that the Air Force has about 25% fewer forces today that are required to execute the national defense strategy. You know, one of the things that General uh, Kelly mentioned to reporters was, you know, that whenever the Navy, uh, the Navy is always looking for carrier life in making deployments, uh, it shapes its decision making because it wants to stretch out that force. Obviously, if you talk to Navy leaders, they feel like they've got a pretty old force uh, that is maintenance heavy and they don't have the, the enough resources in order to keep their fleet running uh, either. Uh, but that the Air Force, uh, General Kelly said is, you know, stands up, you know, generates this capability and, and, and the capacity, but at the risk of wearing itself down uh, all the time. Does there need to be a different construct in how we husband air forces uh, until we can build up uh, the capacity side of it? I mean, I understand we want to improve capability. There is going to be more capacity in B-21s coming online soon, uh, and the F-35 force uh, is, is growing but it's not really growing at a pace, right? We're improving capability, but maybe not capacity. Do we need to use a different model yeah, uh, to not absolutely. burn ourselves out the way we've been burning ourselves out for the last four decades? Well, Vago, I have to tell you, this is where I'm so frustrated because these points that you raised were exactly the ones that some of us have been making with the chief and the secretary, okay? Um, the fact of the matter is, uh, <laughs> you know, that. Yeah, all the services have problems, but the Navy and the Army have been funded to a degree greater than the Air Force for 30 years in a row. That's the reason why the Air Force is the oldest, the smallest, and the least ready. So those points have to be made. It's not like they haven't been made before, uh, but we can't forget them. This was the whole point um, of the uh, Air Force We Need study, uh, and it essentially... Um, was a resource unconstrained evaluation of what does the nation need from its Air Force to execute the national defense strategy. And we're 25% too small. Now, uh, one of the reasons you don't hear much about it is because, well, that was uh, a response from a different administration. People are conflating and confusing the fact that these are bipartisan issues. 
I'm going to talk about that a little bit later in the congressional panel that we had. We had a congressman from either side of the aisle support this proposition that the Air Force needs to be funded adequately. It's not just because the Air Force needs to be equal, but every element. And in fact, let me say it this way. There's absolutely no joint force operation that can be conducted without some element of the Department of the Air Force being involved. You cannot say that about any other service. Now, some people have questioned the affordability of that gold, but and that's why they go, well, we can't afford it, so therefore we shouldn't talk about it. No, that's exactly why Congress called for the study, to determine what the requirements are, not what they cost. Um, and so Kelly put that in perspective by closing with a line that some of us have been using for a decade. And that's that the only thing more expensive than a first-rate Air Force is a second-rate Air Force. I think the chief and the secretary would agree with you. The issue is whether or not they can get the resources for it. Um, and, if you and don't that is, talk about the resources you need, you'll never get them. Correct. But we still, by and large, still have the same split uh, among the services as we always have. Actually, and, that's not true, because here's what is deceiving the Congress and the American public. And that's that $40 billion that's listed in the Air Force budget. If you look at page number two of the Defense Comptroller's presentation of the FY23 budget, it shows the Air Force with the greatest amount of money amongst all the services. But $40 billion in that amount, not a single penny is under the Air Force's control. It's Correct. That's the pass-through. Uh, that's right. That's pass-through to other DOD agencies. If you take that $40 billion out and accurately report what the Air Force gets, it's now number four behind the Army, the Navy, and other DOD agencies. So that's one of the points that we talked about on our congressional panel, is that the Department of Defense needs to um, introduce transparency uh, into the budgets of the services to make sure everyone understands what's really being spent. The Air Force does not get one third of the overall DOD budget. It gets generally about one fifth. Uh, I, should have, I should have put it differently in terms of uh, the one third, one third, one third. It is one third, one third, one third, but the problem is the 40, uh, that 40, that so much of what the Air Force does is actually going to other, uh, other, other line items. Yeah, um, no, it's not and- what they do. It's money that the Air Force doesn't touch it's not seen. And it doesn't matter what it goes to. It can be going for potatoes. It should be removed from the Air Force top line over to where it really resides. And that's in defense-wide spending. And that's what a couple of members of Congress has introduced legislation uh, to make sure is accomplished so we can assure that there's transparency in the Department of Defense budget and decisions are made with an accurate understanding of where resources are going. I, uh, I, would, uh, I would agree with you. And as uh, somebody who's been tracking this uh, drama for more than three decades, uh, completely agree with you, Dave, that that's exactly uh, what has to happen because there's too much that falls under the Air Force's financial purview that, that it does, has no control over uh, at the expense of the combat air forces um, and, and the support uh, capabilities that the, the United States Air Force, as you said, it's the only service that is integral to every single thing uh, that we do, whether it's for lift, for space, 
for strike for intelligence surveillance uh, and reconnaissance uh last uh we've got about 30 seconds left anything else that uh, sort of jumped out at you and you thought was was newsworthy yeah. or noteworthy i talked about the congressional presentation we talked about pass through that's what that presentation was about the third one that caught everyone's attention was when General Minahan, the commander of Air Mobility Command, took the stage and he fired up the audience about the existential threat that China poses to the American way of life and the urgent work that's needed to defeat it. Um, both he uh, and uh, Joan Kelly ought to be commended um, for their candid remarks and presenting awesome messages that hopefully all of the Air Force um, and not just those respective commands we're listening to. With respect to an overall summary, I think it was a great conference. It highlighted the consequential challenges that the uh, Department of the Air Force faces today and in the future. The bottom line being that the Air Force needs more capacity as well as new capabilities, and it needs to increase its lethality. That, that's the only way it's gonna do it in order to deter China, and that's gonna require more resources. Um, and, I I, but the I, very I think last, that... Chief of Staff C.Q. Brown brought the past and the future together and highlighting for the audience that with the indomitable spirit of the men and women in the Air Force, we've been here before and we'll get through it again in the future. Uh, I, I thought that was a, a terrific message. And if I can make just a budgetary count, deterrence is cheaper than fighting a war. We've failed to deter uh, Russia from going into Ukraine, and it's and it's cost us uh, fifty billion dollars, and that's not even yet counting uh, how much money it's going to cost to rebuild the country. And we're not even through this. The economic damage, what have you? The Navy can make a case for a bigger Navy. The Army can make a case for a bigger Army, and the Air Force can make a clear case for a bigger Air and Space Force. And I think that this is the time when we have to make that investment across the Joint Force. Uh, especially in the combat air forces that need um, an urgent, uh, you know, as, as you noted, it is the oldest fleet, but ultimately it's, we're either going to have to spend now or spend more later. And it's more important for us to do that spending now across the board. And I think that that was uh, very powerfully driven home, as you said, not just by General Kelly, not just by General Minahan, uh, but in almost every conversation you had there uh, that, hey, there's a lot of positive stuff that's going on. There's a lot of classified work going on, but there is a lot more work that's got to get done. So, uh, Dave, keep uh, keep up the good fight. Uh, you, you've been at this longer than anybody else I know. All right. Thanks, Fago. I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. Have a great aerospace power kind of day. While at AFA, we also met with Elbit Systems of America's Renan Horowitz to discuss the strategic business environment facing the industry, inflation, supply chains, the changing nature of competition as new firms enter the sector, as well as ways the industrial base can better help the Pentagon solve some of its biggest problems. Here's our conversation with Renan Horowitz. Uh, Renan, it's always an honor and pleasure. Wouldn't be a, a show unless uh, we had an opportunity uh, to meet. Thanks very much for your time. It's a pleasure seeing you again, Vago. Uh, indeed, it's the, it's, the, it's the Renan and Vago show. It's another uh, air show. Um, each year, um, I start off by asking you, like, what are the big messages you've heard from Air Force leadership on this? Um, we've been talking for years about the need for greater speed, uh, moving faster. Uh, you always try to be encouraging about that. What are the, sort of the nuanced messages uh, that you've been hearing from Air Force leadership uh, talking to folks at the show? Um, and whether or not we're really moving as fast as we need to be moving. Yeah, Vago, I think uh, I've heard a lot about the uh, 
operational imperatives, the seven operational imperatives. And uh, my concern, what I'm hearing is, you know, we've, we've outlined the problem. We know what we need to do. The focus on China, all that is, is very clear, but I'm not sure I understand fully what is the underlying strategy and what are the specific actions that needs to be taken. Uh, as you said, speed matters. We need to get capabilities in the field. We need to get lethality. We need to get resiliency. We need to get that in. And my concern is, are we moving fast enough to get this done? You know, one of the things, the analogy I can think about these days, with all the supply chain, you know, people come to us, want us to do analysis, what ifs, come up with alternatives, but until you place an order, you don't know what's going to happen. Same thing I think applies these days to programs and stuff. We need to get things going. We need to get programs underway. We need to get them under contract so that we understand what is the art of the possible and how do we get to a capability that we need to fight an adversary like China. Um, and, and what's the way to do that as, as far as you're concerned? Right? I mean, we've been talking about this, but it, you know, senior folks uh, listen to the podcast. What's the way to get there to be the, the faster, right? I mean, because that is a concern on industry's part is there's a lot of talk, there's uh, a lot of analysis, as you say, a lot of good intentions and statements, but ultimately the ball is not moving faster. What do you need to see as a chief executive in this business? Well, you know, I, I appreciate the attempt by Air Force leadership and Secretary Kendall has been very clear about not just placing uh, contracts in order to do uh, demonstrations and prototyping that so don't get you anywhere. I think that what I would like to see from our customers is a focus on several key discriminating capabilities that are going to provide lethality and capability to the warfighter and then let's move, let's place them on order, let's move on, let's take some risks and fill them as soon as possible, put them in the hands of the airmen or the soldiers and uh, demonstrate the capabilities. I think that's what needs to happen. Um, uh, you have been watching very closely and we've talked uh, before about uh, lessons from operations around the world uh, and you're concerned actually we might be drawing the wrong lessons from the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Um, what, what are your concerns and what are the lessons you're actually drawing from what we're seeing? I, I think, you know, uh, my big concern from, from what's happening in Ukraine is that we draw the conclusion that we'll uh, be facing China in the same way as, uh, as the Ukrainians are facing Russia. I think China will be a completely different game. I think it's going to be much more capable adversary. I think it's going to be a much more difficult uh, a battle in a fight. And I think we need to prepare for that. So I, I do think that from a strategy perspective, the services, the Air Force are doing the right thing. We're talking about agile combat engagement, employment, about protected basing, about distributed contested environment. I think what we need to do is uh, accelerate the programs and the initiatives that will allow us to uh, effectively fight against China in these kind of environments. It's going to be very different than what uh, the Ukrainians are facing uh, with the Russians in, in, in the current fight. It's going to be much, much more challenging. Uh, and, and there is a, a tendency of saying, hey, you know, here's one autocracy uh, and the other autocrat will be very, very similar. Uh, and look, you know, the Russians at least, uh, you know, had operational experience, which, which the Chinese have, uh, don't have. Uh, so I take that point. Where are, are, has, has the customer been as open about the operational challenges that it needs industry to solve? Do you have the kind of threat briefings that you need 
uh, as a senior industry executive of a company that has actually a lot of very innovative and battle-tested technology uh, coming from the Israel side of the business. Um, do you feel that you have a clear, an intel picture that helps you set your strategy and your priorities? I don't think it's sufficient. I think, again, the Air Force, for example, has been very clear about explaining the problem. The Air Force is not being as clear and as collaborative with companies like us on what do we do about that. Um, if you even look at the solution for the uh, ABMS, uh, Secretary Kendall was very clear that ABMS is not moving fast enough, that it's more challenging than, uh, than uh, they predicted, the Air Force leadership predicted. Uh, but now we have five companies that are uh, being placed in a consortium to kind of design and work on some standards. I'm not sure that's going to get the Air Force where it needs to be. Uh, the Air Force, I think, needs to engage on a broader level. It's not just with RFIs, it's a dialogue with the industry. We've talked before about doing maybe even wargaming together with a broader participation from the industry to look at innovative ways to defeat and really address the threat from China. Uh, and, and not to do some advertising, but the Israel side of the business, uh, Elbit plays a critical role actually in uh, that JADC2 environment that Israel was actually developing uh, almost 15 years ago. Uh, now, Udi Shani uh, used to, General Shani used to always joke that he was just the plumber, uh, but it was actually one of the most dramatic demonstrations of uh, uh, interconnectivity uh, across a joint force. Uh, let me tell you, take you to the competitive environment. Um, you know, AFA, even last year, did not have this uh, kind of smaller companies, innovative companies, bigger companies. Palantir has a big stand, Meta Aerospace is here. Um, you know, so many other, uh, uh, you know, uh, Microsoft Federal and the, and the like. I mean, just a whole, Andrew has a much bigger stand. What, how is the competitive environment changing? Because you're an innovative company that is bringing technology to the marketplace and has been growing dramatically, and now you have a whole bunch of new guys who are stepping in into the field. How is the competitive dynamic changing at your rank in the industry? Well, I think, uh, Vago, one of the key challenges in all these new entrants is to differentiate what is uh, really fluff and glitz and what is real. Uh, I would just say, give you an example, uh, a lot of talk in the Army side about IVES and a huge amount of money invested and so forth. And in the end, uh, the solution is not there. It's not mature, it's not fieldable, it's not providing the right capabilities. It will, may, maybe one day after uh, we introduce some more reality and fielding capabilities. I think that's one of the challenges that uh, a lot of these new entrants face. Is it really just as easy as taking a commercial capabilities and applying it to a military problem? Or do you really need to understand how it's deployed, how it's employed, how the airman is going to use it to be effective? So we're looking at this with great interest to see where we can team with people. I think what we bring, Elbit America, is the understanding of how to field uh, equipment, operational excellence in the field, in the hands of the warfighter. And I think maybe a combination of that capability and some of these new, I would say, somewhat glitzy technologies might be a way to, uh, to provide additional solutions and new capabilities. Um, let me take you uh, to budget uh, and inflation, something that uh, we always talk about the business uh, environment. First, uh, budget outlook. What do you like uh, in terms of the NDAA process and, and where we are in terms of funding levels and what do you not like? Uh, I think, you know, uh, there's a lot of talk about funding levels in NDAA. What bothers me mostly, uh, the defense analysis uh, analyst, Jim McAuliffe, 
just put together uh, an analysis that shows that the DOD obligations are way behind. So on one hand, we're talking about needing more budget and more capabilities. What bothers me mostly is the inability of the services to put things on contract, which really is impacting us severely because we have the infrastructure, we have the people, we're ready to do the work. But if they don't place things on contract, we can't do that. So that bothers me more than just the budget's outlooks. Of course, inflation is real. Vago, we talked about it before, labor costs are going up, material costs are going up, inflation is real. It's definitely something that needs to be considered. But I would say my first priority for DOD is place stuff on contracts. Get contracts going, get programs going, because budgets are useless if you don't use them. Uh, and at what point do you need to go to your customers, whether Air Force, Navy, uh, or Army, and seek equitable adjustment? We're actually doing that right now, in some cases. We're going back and asking for, for some relief. In some cases, it's not necessarily a monetary relief. It might be a relief in other contract terms to be able to uh, uh, basically negate some of the impacts of, the, uh, of this. Um, you know, there is, there is uh, potentially some new willingness to include uh, economic uh, adjustment clauses in fixed price contracts. We do have several contracts that are, uh, have pricing for the long term, five year IDIQs and so forth. We're working with our customers right now where we think is, uh, is, is applicable. And, and we're starting to see some more responsiveness. I'm very happy to see there is there's willingness to engage and discuss about this. Renan? Thanks very much. It's always a pleasure. Wouldn't be an AFA if we weren't talking. Vago, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Have a great show. Also at AFA, we met with Dwayne Hawkins, the president of Spirit Air Systems, defense and space business, who has spent the past several years executing a strategy to grow the aerostructures giant's defense and space business to reduce the company's dependence on commercial jetliner work. Here's our conversation with Dwayne Hawkins. Uh, Duane, it's an absolute uh, pleasure. Thanks very much for making time uh, for us. It was a great conversation we had uh, at Farm Brew, and it's great to see you here in Washington, D uh, well, outside Washington, D.C. I agree, Vago, and it's great to see you uh, again, and I'm, I'm happy to talk about some of the progress we've made, even since we talked in uh, this summer. Um, absolutely. I mean, I think that uh, some of the folks in the audience will remember that it was exactly four years ago when you and I spoke here and you unveiled what Spirit's uh, growth uh, strategy was in defense uh, and space. Uh, and you guys have made some enormous strides on that to try to get away from dependency, for example, on a major structure like 53K, which was a prescient uh, choice, unfortunately, given how from a 53K standpoint, the market went Germany having gone to the Chinook. Um, you guys have been growing in, you know, at the time you said you wanted to expand in space as well, take advantage of the proprietary composite technology you guys had invested in, as well as to carve a niche in hypersonics. Talk to us about the progress you guys have made to date in uh, defense and space. Uh, I should note that you have a, a, a great partnership you've struck with Sierra Nevada as well on that front, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. Um, Talk to us about the progress you've made and then block two of the strategy, right? Because you're at now 2.0 about where you, how you grow into the future. Yeah. So, uh, you know, as you mentioned, actually four years to the day almost, we, we created a defense group. We later added space to it about a year later. And the, the, the big thing there, I think, is at that time, of course, we didn't know what the 
last two years were going to, we didn't know what was going to happen that actually happened in the last two years. So it even makes the strategy look better for us because we saw how devastating um, the commercial events that happened because of COVID and the MAX uh, were to our company. We probably were hurt more than any other company really in the industry. So we've made a lot of progress there. We've added a lot of uh, customers, a lot of product. Uh, what they've seen uh, from us is that we have this tremendous design capability uh, with classified engineers that can actually design product. We've, we designed virtually everything that we built anyway in the past, and uh, now we're still designing it. So we're able to design uh, products for our customers. We're able to take these products, uh, uh, design them with production in mind, with scalability and automation. So not just function for the for what the product's supposed to do in performance, but actually things that can be made to the cost that they're supposed to be made, that can scale to the uh, volume size that's supposed to be made, and can be automated and 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 meet our warfighter needs. So we've been really successful at that uh, with uh, really all the primes. Um, and so that's been a, a really, uh, I, I've been very, very proud of the team and the way we've uh, achieved those goals. So we're involved with a lot of programs. Uh, a lot of them are classified, uh, and that's partly because we have this uh, great resource of classified engineers that can actually perform this work. So we can't talk a lot about what we're doing, but um, I think uh, as time rolls on, we'll be able to reveal some of that. And I think everyone will be very, very impressed with the kind of work that we're getting. So we're seeing a lot of growth within the work that we've already had over the last two or three years, because fortunately we've been able to perform. So our best marketing strategy so, so far has been performance on what we've got. And we've been able to uh, yield that. Now Josh, uh, has, Beam has come in lately and give us a lot more clarity with what you talked about and what are uh, and classified all this into five areas so we can kind of get a little bit more focused on those five areas and expand in some areas that we haven't been in so uh, and then we bought FMI uh, if, as you recall almost three years ago now and that has given us the capability to get into the hypersonic business and so we've got some wonderful things that we're doing on the hypersonic side that would have never happened had we not uh, bought FMI. So, so when I talked to you last time, um, you know, four years ago, of course, none of that was happening. You know, we were aspirational on hypersonics, but we really didn't know how we could contribute. Uh, now we do very clearly know how we can tr contribute, and we're we're a major player in that space right now, primarily on the end of. Uh, the high temperature uh, materials and uh, the ability to scale and get up into production rates really, really fast and automate those processes, which is what we need in that specific space without getting into too much detail. Um, and uh, I want to get into your factory of the uh, future technology because it's uh, um, not only applicable to future programs, but obviously uh, on existing programs like the KC-135R where you guys are doing the horizontal stabilizers, building from scratch, which is uh, a, a big uh, transition. I want to pull a little bit more on your partnership with Sierra Nevada, one of the most innovative uh, companies in this space, um, known for its engineering uh, acumen. 
Uh, you're working with Jeff Babione, formerly uh, yep. Lockheed Skunk Works uh, boss, uh, who's another and Tom Weiss, yeah. uh, another uh, you know two great names uh, in the industry. Talk to us a little bit about what the space space growth strategy for you guys is. Yeah, I mean this this is really a, an exciting thing because um, when Jeff was at the Skunk Works, uh, he was uh, a major force be behind uh, bringing us into uh, virtually all his programs. Uh, to work in the design and production, productionization of what they're building, which has made a big difference uh, for them. But Tom was actually Tom actually knew us uh, when we were uh, when the decision was made uh, by Northrop to include Spirit as one of the major partners. You know the seven major partners. There's now five. That uh, he was actually the main person behind that decision. So he knew us way back when, several years ago and uh, chose Spirit. So we're really fortunate. I mean, this this work was going on beforehand. Uh, you know, actually Jerry Moran was a big part of that and getting the companies together. But, you know, now we have people in charge of the company who actually understand our capability. So we've been able to short circuit that path really, really fast because they already know what we can do. And so we are, um, we are working on some major, major programs, uh, highly classified programs. We're stepping it up a level on the classification side. Uh, and that's actually happening in space before it actually happens in defense, which is interesting. And uh, we, we believe in what they're doing. We think programs like the Dream Chaser and some of these other programs that we're working on are the future. We didn't really know whether we would have a, a, a place to play in space because, honestly, I'm not a space expert. A lot of, a lot of the folks in our company aren't space experts. We've since added that expertise, and we really see a place for us uh, in the space business because a lot of these uh, things that are being built are composite, large composites, material, you know, round type of things that we build you know, on the commercial and defense side, and they fit perfectly into the equipment that we already have and in the facilities that we already have. And so we're able to start on these programs right away because our twin owl business on the commercial side isn't doing much right now. And so we're able to actually take that, uh, those facilities and that capital, not have to spend years building all this up and buying it and start building product immediately. And so I think that's one of the real attractions that we have with Sierra is that, you know, we don't have to go wait for all that stuff to happen. We've already got it. Well, clearly, we got all the expertise in place. So in the areas of, of composite and just full up automation and that type of thing, that's where the factory of the future comes in. Uh, we're able to actually make a difference for them. Now, you know, during the pandemic and during... Uh, uh, well, the last two years, we uh, there's two things you can do as a company, and I give Tom a lot of credit, Tom Gentili a lot of credit for this. One is you could just buckle down and try to survive it and, and work through it, which we did some of that, but we also went and made investments and bought companies that we felt would actually help support the diversification effort. So we bought FMI, and then we bought Bombardier over in, uh, over in the, the UK. But we also went in the factory, if you go in the factory now, it looks entirely different 
than it did in 2019 because we've gone into mostly on the commercial side we've gone in and automated it this is factory of the future that we've done with deloitte we've gone in and completely automated and investing it it's been a little tough coming up with the money but we've got the money and because if you're not going to do it when you're down in production when are you going to do it so that's that's i think the big thing but that takes bold leadership and i really give tom and the board a lot of credit for that because most companies, I think, would have just kind of hunkered down and just said, let's just survive. And we're saying, no, 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 we're going to thrive after this. And the only way we can do that is to start uh, investing now in both acquisitions and in uh, automation. Um, you guys play um, a critical role, whether uh, it's on the B21 program. Again, you said an enormous amount of classified work you guys are doing. And in fact, when it comes to aerostructures, you guys are uh, pretty much one of the most important players, no matter who it is. That's the position you wanted to try to carve out. You, um, what are some of the fundamental elements of Factory of the Future? Because you're applying that capability now to the KC-135R, for example. Talk to us about how different that is. People talk about digital design threads and, and, and the like, but you guys have actually taken that far beyond uh, that. Our sponsor Bell, for example, is working on reinventing all of their processes. That's been one of the big things Mitch Snyder has been trying to do at Bell as well. Um, so, I mean, this is part of a wave, but how are you guys actually turning this into profitable, um, deliverable, consistent, and, and actually fits into the whole acceleration process, right? How you do things simply faster and better. So uh, a big part of that is flexibility. So we're, uh, while we are designing some of our automation to meet some specific product on some specific programs, and that's important, particularly on the single aisle, because we know the single aisle business is gonna be there for a long time. On, on the twin aisle business uh, and the things we're doing for defense, we're making that much, much more flexible so that we can adapt to lots of different types of programs uh, and the needs. So I think, I think the key there is the flexibility of the automation. It's not just specific. And so there's such great tools out there now in terms of uh, robotics and in terms of automated material handling that we've been able to really take advantage of that and take a lot of cost and time. And not just in production, but in development. So we're using these things for our development right now of programs, particularly that we're working on with uh, uh, one of our customers, Lockheed Martin, where we're able to actually start developing things uh, much faster and getting it really close to what it would look like in production and not having to go through this major transitional change because we know how we're going to build it and that's how we designed it and then that's how we do the prototypes and obviously we change things but we're flexible enough in our automation and the factory of the future where we can make those changes relatively easy and then actually you know uh, refine it down to a production system that's uh, pretty steady but clearly will be modified in the future as things change and get better let me ask you uh, in a lightning round, because we've got about a minute and a, a half left. Uh, one is, um, obviously, it's a tough time on uh, uh, a little bit on the commercial side. Rates are not as high as they should be. Greg Hayes of Raytheon uh, says that Boeing will be left with about 40% of the narrow body market. We've discussed that on our program, that actually the real share might be smaller. How dependent is your growth investment strategy on how that part of the business does? Uh, because Tom, as you said, has been very generous. Um, you know, what, what's, what's 
what's the strategy and can you self-grow your way through this uh, no matter what happens on the on the commercial side of the business well i hope so that's the that's the plan that's the strategy um i think it's the right strategy we uh clearly uh you know we're still a commercial company primarily and so we need the commercial side of the business to do well in order for us to uh, have the resources to invest back into the defense business but i will say this that um we are becoming less and less dependent on that and uh, we're uh, as we're growing we're able to fund a lot of our projects or get funding elsewhere that maybe isn't available to commercial side of the business but would be available to the defense side and so i think uh, as time goes on and as we continue to uh, make the progress that we're making will be less and less uh, dependent on it. But we always want to stay tied into our commercial people because that's what really makes us different uh, from other people in the business. You know, it's, it's what drives a culture, a very different culture. And, you know, we, we feel like we're a great example of the digital thread. It's hard to say you can really do the digital thread when you don't do everything. But, you know, we do the design, we do the manufacturing, and in many cases we do the full-up inter- uh, integration, like in the 787 Section 41, and that has been transmitted over to the defense side. So we're doing major integration, or will be doing major integration, of major sections uh, of aircraft uh, or other things that um, I think is a big step for us in that direction. We've been doing it already, but that's our plan uh, into the future. So I think, I, I, clearly, we want the commercial side to do better. That's, that's going to make things much better. And it will, be, it will get better. We just don't know exactly when. And so, uh, but on the defense side, that's moving really fast. Don't see that letting up, unfortunately, because of world events. And I think, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see that move fast. And uh, at some point, we'll, uh, we'll, you know, we'll hopefully be able to get close to being at par with the commercial and we'll have a very balanced business, which is what we want to have. Uh, and, and obviously, the commercial side plays into defense. Defense plays into commercial. And anybody know, uh, who knows anything about the 737 knows that it's largely arrives pretty complete at Boeing, and then Boeing um, obviously does uh, some important work. But again, it's a, it's a complete fuselage that shows up. One very last question. Um, what's the key to making complex programs? Like, I'm not going to ask you to comment specifically on NGAD, but we are looking at trying to do very big things very quickly. From your standpoint, as somebody who spent a lifetime in this business, what are the ways to do that quickly and right? So I think, I think the first thing is that... Um, is to really incorporate and embrace a digital environment. So what that means is is that you actually design things not just to perform because clearly we have really really aggressive performance requirements on on those programs the next generations but that we know how we're going to make it, we know what kind of rate we're going to make, we know where we're going to make it, what kind of machines we're going to make it on. And if we can, if we can keep, that's all part of the digital design. And even afterwards, how we're going to service it, right? In the aftermarket world, if you can keep, if we can keep that together, which we are doing with our customers, um, I think that'll really shorten the time. The other thing is, just um, be creative, uh, continue to be creative in the acquisition process, and and not get mired down in too much uh, regulation there which I think some of the programs uh, that we're working on have shown that. And uh, it's just a lot easier to work in that kind of environment. Um, And to just remember we're all a team. 
and this is hard stuff that we're doing. And one guy might stumble a little bit or one area might stumble a little bit, but we all get together and we go fix it. And that's what we've done on the programs that we're involved with right now. And it's very exciting. And that's better now than I've ever seen in my 40 years uh, being in this business. Uh, there's uh, uh, nothing that helps success more than success. That's right. Exactly right. And that's why we get more business because we're performing and being successful. So we can, we hopefully will continue to do that. Yeah. That would, that's our goal. Yeah. Dwayne, always a pleasure. Thanks very much. And best of luck on all those programs and can't wait uh, 30 years from now to hear what they all are. <laughs> well, okay. We may have to do that from the beach somewhere, but that's okay. I'll, I'll do an interview on the beach. I'm, I'm with you. Thanks. <laughs>